All right, hello and welcome back to Liddy Learning with Lauren. So if you guys remember in last week's episode, we talked about ritual dance. This week, we're gonna talk about folk dance. And what I wanna highlight is that ritual dance and folk dance are actually two separate things. Um, we'll talk greater about folk dance later on here, but I just wanna start with the basis that if you remember ritual dance kinda has to do with everything spiritual in the community. So it might uh, consist of, you know, doing a dance um, and praying for something like rain, if it were, you know, a rain dance or even, um, communicating with the dead, with past um, ancestors and stuff like that. Folk dance, on the other hand, uh, has more of a community aspect. Um, it's very social. Uh, it's more about the now and there's different traditions and um, stuff revolving um, around that aspect of it. So we'll get into that. Um, so the two readings that we did for this week, the first one was called Folk Dance, Father Music, and Mother Dance. Um, and then the second one I'll get into in just a little bit. Um, it takes a closer look at folk dance um, through the Japanese culture in particular. Um, but we'll start off talking about just folk dance, father music, and mother dance, and really break down uh, what all folk dance has to offer for us. So what is folk dance? I'm sure if you asked different people about it, you'd get a varying amount of responses. I'm sure a lot of people would point to uh, various cultural dances, you know, uh, whatever they grew up with and kind of what was around them, they might point to as a folk dance. So folk dances can be developed for different reasons. Uh, most of the reasons reflect the essence of the people who created it and their way of life. Um, some popular categories that past folk dances have kind of centered around have been topics such as birth, death, war, the universe, hunting, fishing, religion, marriage, fertility, nature, astronomy, and many, many more. Um, so this kind of just gives you an idea that folk dances really reflect um, a culture and what's important to them, you know, what they're dealing with, what they're living through, what they look forward to, um, and what they celebrate. Uh, folk dances in particular, they kind of embody a vital aspect of people's character, um, and they're a huge communal activity. Um, so it's very social, uh, very together, very, you know, involved um, and vital kind of to their way of life. Um, another point I liked was that it kind of pointed out in the chapter that um, folk dance creates um, a communal activity that uh, forges mutual respect for one another. Um, I really appreciated this uh, because I think it's honestly so true if you think about it, you know, one of the best ways probably to get to know something that's foreign to you is kind of just to go and live in it, you know? Because um, if you think about it, people who are trying to um, learn a foreign language, um, if they're really seriously studying it, a lot of times they'll go study abroad in a country, you know, that speaks it widely, that it's like the first language there. So. If I was wanting to learn Spanish, I would probably have to go, you know, emerge myself into a Spanish speaking country um, so that I could really appreciate and respect and truly understand um, the language and everything um, revolving around it. The same goes for dance and these folk dances, really. Going off that idea of mutual respect, the chapter actually highlighted a very important person by the name of Rosa Guerrero. Guerrero is a Texas educator and has a focus in um, Mexican-American culture. Um, so something that she highlighted was that um, a lot of Mexican-American students uh, that she teaches actually kind of push away and avoid their culture and won't even learn the language or, you know, they kind of 
disown it in a sense because they're ashamed of it and they feel that it's not American and that they're looked down for, um, down upon because of it. Um, another thing was that, you know, people who have foreign names tend to, um, you know, try and change their name, make it sound more American so that it's easier for Americans to pronounce, um, as opposed to, you know, just having Americans kind of adjust and, you know, learn that respect for um, these other peoples who have, you know, these other people who have like a slightly different way of living um, than Americans do. So I thought that was kind of interesting and I would be curious to see how dance might play a role in that. Um, you know, if we got more, you know, folk dance and cultural styles dance in schools, would it help these kids uh, move beyond those boundaries and really appreciate their differences as opposed to being ashamed about them? I personally think it would actually be really easy to start including folk dance, you know, these cultural ideas and stuff within schools um, all over just to teach children about that mutual respect for other people's cultures and, um, you know, ways they can kind of bridge that cap and um, really enjoy each other. Um, I think it would be easy to do so because folk dances themselves, um, you know, we talked about how that purpose, their main purpose is, you know, to socialize. Um, to form a community. They definitely have a recreational aspect um, and they're very participatory. So they're not as say, you know, performed for an audience. A folk dance isn't necessarily something you would go and buy tickets to and see performed on like a proscenium stage. It's very, you know, just done in your own, you know, social setting. Um, there's also usually like live accompaniment that's like specific to um, the culture. So that kind of adds a fun aspect of it and another way for more people to get involved, you know, kids who's kids who play instruments could get involved with this, um, you know, by just learning that. And, you know, uh, you know, today, like, you know, the teacher can be like, you know, we're going to uh, focus on this culture with our music and so on and then bring dance into it in that aspect as well, which would be really a huge, you know, um, learning process for them there, mixing the dance and the music and the culture, really integrative. I think it'd be super cool. Um, super cool. Um, so um, as for dance movements, uh, this would also work well because folk dances are typically, um, they kind of have basic steps and they use a lot of repetition, you know? It's meant for just about everybody to be able to pick up um, and to do. And even the formations, while a lot of them do have formations, such as like circle, semicircle, circle in a circle, uh, squares, parallel lines, it's still structured in such a way um, that many people can be involved with it um, and really get into that um, and go off each other and work with it well. So I've talked a lot about like what folk dance actually is, and I'm going to give you a couple examples of what we talked about in class. Um, of some folk dances that already exist. So a big one that many people may know is the maypole dance. Um, it's a dance that's done typically outside. There's, you know, a big a maypole in the middle, which is essentially a pole, and it's got all these ribbons hanging off of it. Um, it's very easy. Each person has a ribbon, and there's usually a pattern going, and the ribbons are crossing over each other and around the pole until the pole itself is all the way covered um, in ribbon and there's no more ribbon to work with or to move around. Um, this is something I actually did as a kid. Uh, my dance studio just decided to kind of do it for fun. 
Um, I wasn't necessarily taught that it was a folk dance, um, but I am glad that I had that experience because I do remember it being a very, you know, fun social thing. Um, it was easy to pick up the pattern and the steps. We kind of just did a pattern of like weaving over and under and there would be a turn in it. Um, fun stuff like that. Super easy. Uh, the next one was the Giyomu. So this is a Korean sword dance. Um, being that the term folk is it is in um, it, it's kind of a, goes off of a folklore. Um, so you might hear that a lot of these dances are based off of folklores. So this one in particular uh, kind of goes off of the story of a young boy who was fascinated with his sword. He would, you know, go out and practice with it and he had very swift, um, smooth movements and he was very, you know, good on his feet. Um, so he was invited by the king to sh come show his dance. Um, what's funny is that we learned there's actually two different versions of this. In uh, one version, he just, you know, goes and shows the king uh, his dance and is kind of praised for it. And in the second one, he actually kills the king and then kills himself. So as you can see, there's some discrepancy to the actual story, which, you know, really goes in line with what a folklore is. You know, it's not 100% true you know, may or may not be based off of some facts that have been twisted and uh, kind of talked up through through the years. Uh, the Giyomo itself dates back to 660 AD. Um, it has a big connection between body and costume. Uh, so the movement really reflects these long baggy sleeves they wear. Um, and the dancers in this specific dance have very like light steps it flows with the music um and the sword itself is almost an extension of the arm it's just very fluid um what i found surprising about it when we were watching the Giyomu in class was that when i think of sword dances i um definitely go like my mind is like oh it's probably going to be like aggressive like swift movements like you know martial arts like really strong and you know um like ha ha but it really wasn't. Um, I even wrote down that it was kind of oddly smiley. There was one point I remember in the video where one of the dancers kind of looked to the side towards where the camera was and she, um, they were smiling. So I was like, oh, okay. It was just very light. Um, it was entertaining. This one did have more of a um, performance aspect to it. And I think that goes back to its folklore of it being, you know, performed for a king um, and so on. So the last one that we watched in class is called the Bangra. Um, the Bangra is from the South Asian Punjab people um, from the like India, Pakistan area. Uh, this dance is a spring harvest transformed into a dance for weddings, birthday fairs, um, etc. Um, it's usually performed by males, I believe, or at least in the video we watched, it was solely males. Um, and the costumes are very colorful. Um, Something I wrote down about this one that it was almost kind of acrobatic. So there was definitely partner work um, in the actual dance. There was one point where um, there were sets of partners and one partner was standing um, on the backs of the uh, other partners and still, um, you know, going through the dance and they still had formations and stuff like that. Um, Something else that was interesting was actually the props they used. So I don't know the meaning behind these props, but I'm going to assume they were kind of culturally based. Um, one of them I wrote down kind of looked like an accordion. It was very fun. They were pulling it, you know, kind of in the motion that an accordion may go in. And it was very integrated into the dance. They also had um, different like 
I don't know what else to call them other than sticks, really. They had like tassels and stuff hanging off of them. They were sometimes used for percussion. Um, very mixed in though, um, and very entertaining there. So this one was also kind of more performance-based. I'd say it was a good middle between still having that social aspect and still being a performance. Um, and it did have some technique to it, but I think it was minimal enough and it had enough repetition um, that with a little practice, many people would be able to, um, you know, do it successfully. So this kind of segues us um, into our next section, which was about um, Japanese dance theater. The chapter itself was called Piercing the Mask of Japanese Dance Theater. Um, so I'm just going to go over Japanese folk culture and kind of the separate dances that we study as a whole, because if I break each one down individually, I will probably be talking for a good hour or two. So um, Japanese folk culture in particular is very interested in grotesquerie, um, ghost stories, demons, and um, Dionysian-like dances. Uh, they also focus on like beauty too. It's kind of finding the contrast and the flow between uh, beauty and grotesquerie, um, which just brings out this very expressive and um, very interesting kind of side to their culture. So the different dances we studied were um, the bagaku, the no, um, the buto, and the habuki. Um, they all kind of had, you know, different stylizations and different things that were focused on. Um, but something that was kind of similar throughout all of them was uh, the very expressive makeup. Um, they were all very animated, some more so than others. Um, and then there were also props included in some of them. Um, so that was interesting to see. Uh, we watched a video on um, the uh, Hibuki in particular. It was kind of a longer video, uh, but we got to take a pretty good look into their culture through this. Um, so in the video, um, I found it interesting the way they used props. Um, so like there was a lion mask that um, one of the females was holding at one point, and there was also these butterflies on the stick. And later on, um, the actress actually turns into the lioness and then there's like an ensemble of dancers that turn into the butterflies. So this idea of animation is kind of played through within that. Another thing we talked a lot about in class and kind of witnessed within these videos, um, because the videos included um, interviews from very prominent actors um, in Japan. And the actors themselves are very involved with the character. Um, the, this man interviewed two lead actors uh, for the Hibuki that we were watching, and both of these actors just, like, they had been doing this role forever. This role was kind of a part of them, and they had totally become this character, um, and they're so involved with it. Um, so when these actors go into it, it's a matter of, like, they do voice training, they do dance training, um, just all kinds of training for it, and they really dedicate themselves to this character until they're, you know, until they reach the end of their career, and then the mantle's kind of passed on uh, down to somebody else. Something interesting um, about the actors and such was that um, the Hibuki, for instance, was started by Okuni Kibuku, um, and she was a female. Um, and most of the roles in this uh, show are female roles, but that kind of became illegal in Japan that women were not allowed um, to be seen in this manner. It's kind of a very, um, it can be very, this, uh, the hibuki can be very sexualized and sometimes there's even nudity in it and such. Um, 
So what they ended up doing was that they trained men into these roles um, and it's kind of just stayed that way, um, which is why um, the two men that were interviewed, one of them um, did specialize in a female role uh, that he played. And he was, you know, even down to the voice training and the mannerisms and stuff, like you could tell he had definitely put a lot of work into it there. Um, so going on to the Bouteau, uh, we kind of watched a shorter video about this. Um, and the um, uh, guy I interviewed was very similar. Um, he was very dedicated to his role. Um, the way he described it was interesting to me. He said, I've danced life and life has taught me. He kind of had this perspective that art cannot be taught because art is life. Um, and he suggested that we just live dance. We don't necessarily learn it. Um, and that learning the bateau begins um, with abandonment of self. So I found that a very interesting perspective because coming from my place right now, you know, I'm literally in school to learn art, so to speak, you know, to learn dance. Um, and, you know, he just kind of has a different perspective. Like, yeah, it can be taught, but um, for him, it's something, you know, abandonment of self and then just kind of living through or, you know, living the bateau, so to speak. So, but that's, uh, that's kind of a wrap um, on this week's episode. I definitely really enjoyed um, taking such a specific look at the Japanese culture. I think there's a lot it has to offer, um, and I definitely haven't discovered all there is. That was such kind of a brief overview of it. Um, but something that has stuck out to me and that I've thought a lot about um, just after uh, reading it and after our class session was just... Um, the links they've kind of taken their theater and their drama and their dance and all of the integration of it too. Like they've taken it and they've really integrated it so much with life. I think that we today kind of separate the idea of life and art sometimes, even though we say life informs art and stuff like that. Um, I think that we've kind of taken it and, you know, making it a performance thing and set all these standards on it when really um, it would be interesting, I think, to take kind of a step back from it um, and still add that, I, you know, that essence of drama and like the makeup and stuff like that, um, but kind of really just integrate it more like they do. I think that would be an interesting um, step to look at. Um, but yeah, that's a wrap on today's episode. So tune in next week for our next session.